Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your grace in our lives. And Lord, this morning as we uh, take a look in your word and uh, what uh, you have inspired, uh, that our eyes might be open as to how you are working in our lives uh, for our good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, this is going to be kind of a fire hose. We've got a hustle uh, this morning. Um, Step four. Uh, we've, we've covered the first three steps. Step four in AA is that you made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And just as we started with the recognition that we are powerless over addiction, whether that's substance, but really the reality in our lives, uh, sin, um, step four encourages us to be brutally honest in our self-examinations. Now, um, all of us uh, can benefit uh, from this step. Uh, this is the one where you actually sit down uh, with paper and pencil and say, um, here are uh, all the things uh, that uh, I'm struggling with, all of my garbage, uh, all of my struggles, all of my, the worst things I've ever uh, done uh, in my life putting them down on paper. Uh, and again, it's this counterintuitive thing that the knowledge of our own limitations and weakness uh, actually is a good thing, not a bad thing, because it keeps us uh, from uh, self-reliance. And this is one of those steps where um, a lot of people don't do it. Or if they do it, they do it kind of half-heartedly. Uh, step four and step nine tend to be those steps. Because it's really hard. I mean, who wants to sit down with a piece of paper and pencil and say, Here, here's what's wrong with me, as, as I see it. Here's what's wrong with me, uh, as I see it. And a lot of people in A find that they can't, they don't do step four until they can't keep from doing step four. Because what they experience is what sometimes is called hollow, uh, hollow sobriety. And that's because they fail to address the inner issues behind addiction. And what ends up happening is you just try to treat uh, the symptoms. Uh, so uh, we're going to get to this, but I'll just say it now. In my life, one of the things uh, that I think, if, if I'm struggling with something, I think that I need to sort of come up with some ways to cut corners and to sort of deal with it and, and, and to keep it under control. Uh, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is me right? Uh, what needs to happen is I need to be changed in order for there to be change to take place uh, in those areas of my life that I see as real deficiencies and real issues. And this is terrible because nobody uh, likes to be, I mean, how many of y'all do employee reviews? Aren't they awesome? Right? They're great. <laughs> and whether you're receiving one or whether you're giving one, uh, it's, you, you brace yourself. Uh, there is no such thing as constructive criticism. Right, because your your supervisor can say, "Let me tell you 50 things, 50 reasons why you're awesome." But there's just one area that I think you need some improvement on. I've noticed you need to work on this. Uh, you're going to leave that meeting what? Thinking of the 50 awesome things? No, the one. Right? You're going to go away with the one negative issue that was brought up in the entire review. Uh, but uh, this is good. So what this is, is it functions the same way that the law does in the Bible in that it pushes on the bruise. It pushes on the bruise that we actually may not have been aware of. Uh, there are often things in my life, and if, if you're married, you experience this often. Uh, you think that things are great, and then your spouse says, uh, actually, you, you have a problem uh, with whatever it might be. And it might actually come as news to you. 
that you're not as great as you thought you were. And uh, and so when when the bruise is pushed on, the first response is what? Whoa! <laughs> I, I wasn't even aware that, that that was in my life. And of course, uh, there's some defensiveness uh, that goes along with that. Uh, but the big book in AA, which is like the big manual, uh, says that there really are three areas, uh, problematic areas, dealing with human weakness. And they are anger, fear, and sex. And I bet you that um, sort of your deepest, darkest sins uh, fall in one of those three or two of those three or three of those three categories, anger, fear, and sex. And so when you're alone with your thoughts, um, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes my mind will race back to an event uh, where I was the worst in my own estimation that I've ever been. And it, it, it just, it's always, it's always there lurking. It's always there lurking and comes up at the craziest of times and, uh, and really renders me helpless because I know that I'm guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, um, and it just, it makes me sick. It makes me sick uh, to my stomach. And so when left alone with our thoughts, those are the things that, that come up um, in our minds. And so for a lot of people in the AA, when they sit down with their paper and pen, they start uh, by praying for honesty. Uh, God, uh, what is it in my life that you would have me see uh, that is, is not pleasing to you and is actually killing me? And so step four inventories start uh, by looking at Resentment, uh, and uh, I, I, this is a big issue for me. I, I, you know, St. Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, I do, uh, and so, um, and it's it's a. I mean, when it, resentment is really the craziest thing on the face of the earth. I actually, uh, but sometimes there's reasons why we ought to be resentful or explain why we're resentful. I had a seminary professor who was just a terrible, terrible man. And, uh, and really made my life crazy, and his behavior toward me bordered on criminal, where the university actually had to get involved. And, um, and so uh, he was wrong, and I was right to be angry, but that thing is a sea anchor in my life. Even now, sometimes when I think about it, I just get angry, and I start thinking about ways, like, how can I ruin his life? Right? <laughs> what, what can I do? Right, you, you know, you, you tell people under the... You know, I'm not gossiping, but I'm giving you this as a prayer request. Pray for this person because he's a jerk, right? You know, um, uh, and so you know, you're going to do all kinds of things in order to to really fuel the resentment that you have uh, toward uh, other people, and it's it's debilitating, right? It it acts as a sea anchor. It, it's it's trying to to run when you you clearly uh, have something holding on to your leg in life. And the way that AA normally breaks it down is that we have resentments toward one of two things, people and institutions. And you know, just because they make their way on the list, just because you res resent somebody, uh, doesn't mean that you don't love them. right? Because there are a lot of people in our lives and maybe institutions that we resent uh, that we actually love. Parents, children, friends, uh, other family members, those who are really close to us. And uh, the funny thing about resentments is that um, often we know better. You know, rationally, if we were to sit down with our resentments in life, we would see just how irra irrational they, they really are. Um, 
for instance, uh, I have somebody close in my life who will, whose name will go unmentioned, uh, but they have, they really have a thing about people who drive Mustangs, right? I mean, it totally, like, just Mustangs, you know, oh, that really says something about somebody if they drive a Mustang, and, um, and that's ridiculous, right? I mean, is it not ridiculous? It's sort of like, you know, um, and I do this, I, I joke about this person, and I say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And yet, uh, I'll be driving in Mountain Brook in some, you know, where everybody runs red lights, because that's what you do. And like, some car will go through, and it's like, typical of someone to drive that expensive car to go through that red light. They just think they own this place. When in fact, you know, I do it too, right? I just, you know, zoom through. Um, and so, resentments, you know, we realize how irrational they are. They're, they're really uh, crazy, and yet uh, we can't help but, but hold on to them. And even sometimes with things that have happened long ago in our lives, we'll say things like, well, I'm over it now, or time heals all wounds, right? That's not true. Jesus heals wounds. Time doesn't. They fester over time, right? They get worse over time, and they get entrenched. Uh, and with the fourth step, indeed, uh, there's a little proverb that says, you know, light can only shine in an open wound, right? And that's what the fourth step does in this fearless inventory, that you actually are letting the light shine in on something that you would rather have covered up. But that's only the place where God can begin uh, to do his work. And so God heals wounds by enabling people to actually forgive their offenders. It's not an issue of, I need to get over this. Uh, the only way that you're going to get over it is if God intervenes in your life and changes your heart in such a way that you can, you can forgive the people that you resent, uh, who may have actually hurt you in a very real way. And uh, in that uh, forgiveness, I mean, that, that requires uh, a change of heart. Uh, one of the songs that the girls and I were... Um, uh, there are a couple songs that are very funny sung around our house like that great song, I Don't Know Why I Love You, But I Do. And that's one of them. And um, uh, uh, I Don't Like You, But I Love You, right? That's another one that we sing in our house. And there are a lot of people in my, house, in my life who are like, I know I'm a Christian, but I don't like you, but I guess I love you, right? That are like that. Uh, but God really has to begin to do work on our hearts where we can actually forgive those who have hurt us and so that we're enabled to move on uh, in our life. And uh, John Zoll in his book uh, has a very funny uh, moment when he's talking to somebody helping them go through the fourth step. And um, he says, I remember one individual in AA who showed me a list with over 900 names on it. It was pages and pages of names, the kind of extreme behavior that alcoholics are known for. I wondered if, he could, if we would ever be able to finish this inventory. We started to look through it together, and immediately I noticed multiple repeats. He had his mom on there 12 times. <laughs> and many other individuals were listed multiple times. I remember asking him, how many Dianes do you know? <laughs> together we were able to boil his list down to a much more manageable, though still somewhat unwieldy, 250 resentments. At one point, while looking at his section on institutions, I asked him, it says here that you resent communism. Is that true? Do you really have a resentment toward communism? And this is very funny, because if you know John, you can see this. Uh, he replied, I guess not. And so we crossed it off the list. And then I asked him, what about capitalism? Is that a big red button topic for you? He again said no, and we crossed it off the list too. Finally, I perplexedly asked, what about Subaru? 
It says here that you resent Subaru. Do you really resent Subaru? He looked at me with fire in his eyes and responded, big time. <laughs> Subaru stayed on the list. And we went from there. He was very diligent, and soon we were on to his fifth step. Okay, so nobody can tell you what to resent and what not to resent. Like, if you really resent it, then you resent it. I mean, there's obviously some deep-seated issue there. And, and you know, there are going to be things uh, on your list uh, that are, are overlooked. I mean, it's not an issue of of you have to get everything down. Uh, but really, the way God uses it, your heart begins to be open where you become sensitive and start to see those other areas. And so it doesn't need to be 900 names. And in fact, uh, this will get Christians in a lot of trouble. One of Luther's great struggles uh, before he came uh, to the place where he saw that the righteous uh, lived by faith and were reckoned as righteous uh, by faith is that he was always afraid. He thought the only way God will forgive a sin is if I enunciate it clearly, right? If I, if I actually say, God, I did this, please forgive me. And so if he didn't articulate it, God would not forgive him. Right? A lot of people still believe that today, but that's not true. And, and so he spent most of his time thinking about what sins have I committed that I may not even know about. Right? And, it, and it drove him to the point of despair because he never thought that he could actually get to a place of forgiveness until God through his word, said, you're reckoned as righteous. Because of what Jesus has done, uh, you are forgiven. And it doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with what I have done for you. And so if there's some deficiency uh, in your list, uh, don't worry. Uh, God does have a way of, of bringing it up later on. And what you find as you work the list is you begin to ask yourself, where, where am I to blame? Right? As you look at those issues in your own life. I know for me and my seminary professor, even though he's uh, a total uh, jerk, um, you know, I, I began to see in my own life ways in which I enabled that to happen. And that in some ways I set myself up for him to react uh, and do the things uh, that he did. And that's really important because when we're dealing with, with sin, especially those who have wronged us, we need to take Jesus' words to heart when he says, uh, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now this passage has been used for years and years to justify this principle of no judgment. This is a no And that is not what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. Is that as you begin to work the list, and this is just true in general, not just as it applies to what we're talking about this morning, and you become more and more aware of your sin, what that does is it makes you aware of your own role and your own human condition. And when you realize how much of a mess you are, when you start dealing with other messy people, it changes things, right? Because you're not now coming from a, a position of, I'm the wrong party, I have the moral high ground, how dare you? But even though they might have actually wronged you, and it's a legitimate wrong, you begin to understand a little bit more of what it feels like to perpetuate sin and to actually be the offending party. And so what Jesus is saying is... Uh, We've all got specks in our eyes. But have y'all ever had like a little piece of dust or a little tiny piece of sand in your eye? 
Right? How big is it? It's microscopic. But what does it feel like when it's in your eye? Feels like a log. Feels like a log. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that our sin, the speck in our eyes, ought to bother us like it like a real speck does, like a grain of sand. And just understand that as you're approaching the other person. Right? As you're approaching the other person. Because in reality, uh, we're all in the same boat. One of the things that causes a resentment in, in my life, and one of the catchphrases, uh, because we're such a managerial household, uh, is manage expectations. Manage expectations. That's a big thing in our family. Uh, but uh, what AA tells us is that an expectation is a premeditated resentment. And um, <clears throat> that is absolutely true. Because I've come is that you can't put expectations on people, right? Because they're not going to, you know, again, life would be great if everybody just did what I wanted them to do. Uh, but, but that's not the way that life works. And that's not the way that fear works. When I was a little boy, I grew up in a, a very devout Episcopal household. And so we had a slot machine in the basement. And um, <laughs> next, next to the bar at eight, I could make the best old fashioned. And, um, and uh, it was an antique slot machine. And it had these wonderful Indian head buffalo nickels in the front paneling of it. And it was a nickel slot. And um, the, the rule was there was always sort of a little dish of nickels there that the house always wins. I mean, even if you got the three bars, all these nickels would come in pouring out. It was like, you know, $5. So, but the rule was is that whatever you win goes into the dish. And when the dish is empty, the dish is empty. And so uh, I was a kid and my aunt was visiting and she was looking after me. And I said, uh, Aunt Georgianne, uh, we're out of, I just used up all the nickels. I'd gambled them away. They're really good to teach kids at a young age the, the insidious of gambling. Uh, but th look, watch this. So she said, Andrew, I don't, I don't have any nickels. Um, and I just assumed that she would give them to me. And so what I did, uh, I, I, th I know she has nickels I, because we were in her car and I saw that she had toll money. See, I know that she has nickels. So when she went back into the kitchen doing whatever she was doing, I snuck outside and went into the car and took the nickels out and gambled them away. And uh, she, uh, I didn't know it, but was looking out of the kitchen window at me doing this. Uh, and, um, and when uh, she approached me and confronted me about this, uh, I can remember being angry as a child and saying, but you had nickels and you didn't give them to me. Right? That somehow she had wronged me and my stealing of, of the nickels was justified. Well, an expectation is a premeditated uh, resentment when uh, a lot of times we harbor resentments in our life because we think somebody should have reacted the way that we expected them to react, but they didn't. Uh, but they didn't. The second thing uh, that AA says that we all need to take a look at is fear uh, because fear can be crippling. And I see fear operate in um, all kinds of spheres in, in my line of work. Uh, <clears throat> everything from actual phobias, like I'm a, I'm a claustrophobic or I'm, or I'm a arachnophobic or, or whatever it might be. Uh, but where I see it oftentimes is in relationships. In relationships, there's a fear. Well, if, if I do this, this might happen. And um, we, uh, Lauren and I have a friend who had dated a guy for 10 years. And uh, she... Uh, Acknowledge, she said, you know, if, if we break up, then um, I don't know what I'll do. I've already invested 10 years in this relationship, and, and I just don't feel like that there may be anybody else out there. And so even though, uh, because what this guy had done, that what caused the conversation was uh, he had, she said, you know, I think we need to talk about marriage. 
after 10 years and he said, you know, I really don't see myself getting married before 40. Um, wrong answer. And, uh, and so uh, she, she really was stuck in a spot. And so her response to this was to come talk to Lauren and I. And she said, you know, I, I just, I don't want to break out with him. And so what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to give him an ultimatum. I'm like, let me tell you what happens there. Um, <clears throat> well, um, you know, and even, even in the midst of a breakup, uh, you know, you, you do think like uh, Burke Bacharach tells us, I'll never fall in love again. Right? There's this fear that, that there actually may not be anything else out there, that God may actually just sort of leave us to our own devices. And that's why fear can be crippling and keep us in patterns of behavior, uh, because at least it seems manageable and it seems safe. And in small ways, I mean, people were born like this. So I have a daughter who's afraid of the dark. So what do we do? Nightlight, right? So that's her way of managing her fear instead of actually putting it down and saying, we've got to confront this. Right? There's actually nothing to be afraid of. If God is for us, who can be against us? But we have all of these little techniques from nightlights uh, to ultimatums uh, that try to manage the fear uh, in our lives. And the thing about most fears, especially those deep-rooted ones, sticking with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, they're always future-oriented. Right? Fears are always future-oriented. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, not, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Well, uh, thanks for nothing, Jesus. Um, that, that's really helpful. Uh, because, what, I mean, he says that, and we're left saying, well, that's exactly how I feel. Right? I do worry about those things. Uh, our fears are always future-oriented, and, and it would be great for us not to fear, uh, but a lot of our fears are completely irrational. The big book uh, has this to say about that. With regard to fear, the big book says, we are now on a different basis. The basis now beyond step three. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust the infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he, en does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. And so here again, uh, it's God operating in our lives. And not only are we directed toward what he would have us be, but we're directed to him. We're directed to him. And then finally, the third area that Big Book talks about is dealing with sex. Uh, and I was about to say, now I'm not going to get into the new, too much of the nitty-gritty here, uh, but that's part of the point. Nobody ever wants to talk about it. All right, it's totally taboo, and it's a problem in the church. I'm not saying that people should say, let me tell you a couple stories. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, 
Uh, so it, it's, not, it's, it's nothing like that. Um, but here's one of the big problems in the church is because it's so taboo, we've isolated sexual sins and made them to be the worst possible sins anybody could commit. It's the worst thing that you could possibly do. And so where people will talk about resentment, they'll talk about fear, uh, you start talking about sex and every, they, they shut down. Right? They, they, they never give you uh, the real uh, story. And uh, Becky Pippert, um, I've shared this story before, uh, but Becky Pippert wrote a book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And in it, she is speaking at some large conference and after her talk, what happens to her a lot and, and most big speakers is that afterward people kind of linger around want to talk to her and and she noticed there was one woman kind of hovering on the edge and just waiting for a moment but was waiting for everyone else to speak to Becky Pippert, Becky Pippert before she was able to approach her and um, finally it came time for that and the woman walked up to her and she said you know I've actually never told anybody this only my husband and I know but uh, my husband and I did youth ministry together at a large mega church, and we had a really wonderful ministry. We were blessed, and um, we were just dating at the time, and I got pregnant and had an abortion. And I never told anyone at the church. No one ever knew about it, and, um, and it, it has so plagued me, my feeling of guilt and um, just sinfulness over the whole thing. She said that even on that day, which was supposed to be so glorious and affirming, my wedding day, when I walked down the aisle of that church with all of those parishioners that I had served alongside in youth ministry, even though they were smiling, all I could hear them saying to me was murderer. And she says, and I just don't know that God could ever forgive me. And Becky Pippert said, the only reason why she said that she could say this was the Holy Spirit, because this is not the right thing to say, humanly speaking. And she looked at this woman and said, you've done much worse. The woman's eyes got all big and she said, you murdered God's own son. Because of your sin, he was, he was nailed to the cross. And the woman began to weep and she said she felt relieved for the first time in years because she was actually able to put that in perspective to what sin really is. Right? It doesn't sin, God doesn't excuse uh, sin, uh, but when it comes to issues especially surrounding sex, we think that they're the absolute worst things in the world, and they may be uh, for you. It may be the thing that you think about uh, when you're left uh, alone with your thoughts, uh, but God's arm is never too short to save, and he's always there. And when he redeems, he redeems all of you. He doesn't say, I definitely forgive the time that you stole nickels from Aunt Georgianne. That's <laughs> fine. Uh, but DZ on October 13th, 19-whatever, forget it. Right? We're going to need to work. His forgiveness is infinite in, in, both, in both areas, and yet it's really hard for us to, to let go of that and even to allow God uh, to work in those areas because we do have such a fear of judgment and a fear of unforgiveness. And so once you're able to actually do that honest inventory, you can move on to step five, which says that we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong doings. All right, this is where I check out. Um, you know, and I'm a priest. Uh, the fourth step is diagnosis, right? It's all law. It's all, there's no comfort. It's cold comfort if it's anything. It's all law. It's saying, what's the problem? What, what, am, I, what am I all hung up on? But it sets you up for step five. And um, 
the thing about it is, is that if you've ever been in one of these situations, uh, and I have people come in the office, not, you know, sort of put on the purple stole and set up a screen and, you know, sit there and, and uh, but people will come and say, I've just got to unload on you. And I said, that's fine. Is that everybody always thinks that they're unique and like, you're not going to believe the sin that I'm dealing with. And my response is normally like, really? I've done that twice. You know, <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's really not as bad. As, I mean, it, it is, I understand. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to be told, especially when a lot of couples will come into my office that are struggling in their marriage, they'll think that they're the only couple struggling with that. And I'll say, congratulations, you're a statistic. Actually, 80% of people struggle with this issue. And their eyes get all big. And again, it's sort of the backward nature of this, but all of a sudden, they feel better. Right? They feel better because they understand that they're not alone in what they're doing. And so, but a lot of people think, you know, I, I don't want to confess to somebody what I've done uh, because if anybody knew this about me, they would never talk to me again. And when you find out that you're not the only one, um, there's a sense of relief in that and even God's mercy coming through that. Uh, Hebrews uh, 5 uh, helps me. And, and ought to help you in talking about this when someone comes to speak to you. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Right? Know thyself. Uh, because I know the, uh, my own issues, my own uh, sin. Uh, part of my role is dealing gently with sinners in light of my own sinfulness. And John puts in a great Bonhoeffer quote when he writes, You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. Well, that's what Christian uh, confession does, and which is why in our communion services we say, Come unto me, all you that travail and are heavy laden, and I will uh, refresh you. Because the fact of the matter is that we're all travailing, and we're all heavy laden. And when we actually are able to confess our sins to somebody else and have that be met uh, with a feeling of relief, uh, we're finally ready to go into step six, which is that we are entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. And again, most of us probably have had uh, points in our lives where we have tried to manage uh, our own sin and... Um, as AA says, you know, doing it my way is what got me here. Uh, but, you know, as a Christian, uh, you find out that life is like whack-a-mole, right? Just when you think you've got one whack down and another one just kind of pops up and you, and you just spend your whole life whacking it at, at your sins. Um, but really, to God, our defects are our spiritual resumes, right? Talk about bringing nothing to the table. Hire me. Um, our defects are our spiritual resumes, but what we find is that our self-knowledge is not enough. Just knowing, hey, I'm a mess, is not enough. And I share this story that John uh, shares in his book. Consider the story of the watermelon farmer. He loved his watermelons and grew them with great affection. But he had one nagging problem. 
A group of punk kids were known from time to time to terrorize his beloved watermelon patch, usually stealing some of his best produce. Every year when the watermelons got large enough for harvest, these sneaky saboteurs would infiltrate his patch and make off with some of his crop. The farmer tried all kinds of techniques to protect his watermelons. He would stay awake in his porch rocking chair, shotgun in lap, waiting for the assailants. But they would show up just as he nodded off and be gone before he could even fire off a shot. His frustrations mounted from year to year until finally he built a fence around the patch. They still broke in. The next year he lined it with barbed wire. He bought guard dogs and a security system. But all these measures failed to prevent the surprisingly wily thieves from breaking in. His preoccupation with security grew into a perennial source, source of anxiety and neuroses. Finally, one night, just before the crop reached harvest time, the farmer came up with a brilliant plan to stop the thieves. He woke up early the next morning, went into his shed, and created a small sign, which he attached to a stake. He planted it right in the middle of the patch. It read, one of these watermelons is poisoned. <laughs> Finally, for the first time in weeks, he slept well, knowing that the thieves would stay away for fear of being poisoned. The next morning, he walked out to the watermelon patch with an air of confidence. His smile was quickly replaced by a frown when he noticed something written on his sign. The word one had been crossed out with a black slash. Scrawled just above it was the word two. So the sign now read, two of these watermelons are poisoned. <laughs> the point is, as far as step six is concerned, our best thinking and planning is not enough to beat our defects of character. We cannot change ourselves even if we understand the ways in which we would like to change. Shel Silverstein points this out in his classic poem, The Little Blue Engine. If the track is tough and the hill is rough, thinking you can just ain't enough. And that is true. So awareness uh, is one step, uh, but it's not everything. But a lot of people, including Christians, when they get to the place where they understand who they are as sinful human beings, sometimes are quick to make excuses for themselves. They defend their defects of character on the grounds that they can't be changed. And step six continues to exhibit compassion for the human condition, but it refuses to excuse sin. Because what we find is that self-righteous is more detrimental to a relationship with God than despair and humility. Uh, I share with you one last story, which John and I actually spent a lot of time talking about because the website Gawker named this person the world's worst person on the face of the earth. A few years ago, a young professional named John Fitzgerald Page made headlines when a young woman, who this, is, uh, this, is, this guy's from Atlanta, which makes it even better, who had approached him on Match.com. And they published two of his emails to her, and here's the report the girl wrote. So, and this is in Gawker. So I, I winked, which is, I guess, how you say I'm kind of interested in you on, on Match.com. I winked at this guy on Match.com. So I winked at this guy on Match. Should have known better, considering his screen name was Ivy League alum. He responds with the following email. I live in a 31-story high-rise condominium, right in the middle of the Buckhead Nightlife District. Do you ever come to this area of town to shop, go, out, visit, explore? I went to an Ivy League school, the University of Pennsylvania, for my undergraduate degree in economics and my graduate degree in management, Wharton. Where did you go to school? 
What activities do you currently participate in to stay in shape? I work out five times a week at LA Fitness. Do you exercise regularly? I'm six feet tall, 185 pounds. What about yourself? <laughs> I'm truly sorry if that sounds rude, impolite, or even downright crass, but I have been deceived before by inaccurate representations, so I prefer someone to be upfront and honest on initial contact. I do mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance for limited brands, Bath and Body Works, Victoria's Secret, etc. Enjoy any of our stores slash divisions? <laughs> do you have any, any other recent pictures you care to share? I have many others if you care to see them. Regards, John. So this woman. So I, in turn, send him a polite no thanks through the Match.com system, which sends him the following email. Thanks for writing me, but unfortunately, we're just not a good match. Good luck in your search. Our portraits didn't match on personality. John then responds with the following email. I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me and therefore have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. <laughs> I am a trainer on the side. In fact, I am heading to the gym in 26 minutes. So next time you meet a guy of my caliber, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you one free training exercise session so you don't have to blow it with the next 8.9 on hot or not. Ivy League grad, Mensa member, can bench press, squat, leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, has an MBA from the top school in the country, lives in a Buckhead high-rise, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures as an extra, was in Jezebel's best dressed. Oh, that's right, there aren't any more of those. Regards, John. <laughs> Well, like all of us, poor John is rife with character defects, and we can easily list the ones he forgets to mention. Uh, <laughs> but the example reveals just how, in God's world, a strength can be a weakness. And so, if we still cling to something we will not let go, we have to ask God to help us be willing, even those things that we perceive as strengths. Very quickly, step seven, and then we pray that God would take both the good and the bad that exist within us, for the good may in fact be our bad, and we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. We actually trust that the Holy Spirit will do his work, because only God can do the transformative work necessary in our lives and make us whole. And in fact, spiritual growth is marked by a growing reliance on God, understanding a greater need for his salvation, not just getting better. We may actually feel worse about ourselves, which is an indicator that we are getting better. As Martin Luther told us in the Reformation, we are simul justus et peccator, that we are both justified and yet at the same time deeply mindful of our sinfulness. In God's eyes, we are saints, but in human eyes, including our own, we are sinners. But how does God work? His power is made manifest in our weakness. We see that in the parable of the prodigal son. What if the son had just gotten his act together and gone out and got a well-paying job and lived in a buckhead high-rise and was a personal trainer on the side? <laughs> it would have robbed God of his glory. But because he has nothing to bring to the table and, in fact, desires what even the pigs have, God's glory is made manifest in his weakness. 
But you know what? We do see God work in our lives and deliver us. I often find myself being in a bad place and then all of a sudden not being there. And I'm not necessarily able to pinpoint any moment or thing that happened, but the things are different because God is different and he intervenes. And I pray that God gives us willing hearts to do that. Amen.